Welcome, welcome, welcome to On Democracy with F.P. Wellman. I am, of course, Fred Wellman, your host. Uh, we are coming to you from the, the beating heart of America in St. Louis, Missouri. Actually, the freezing heart of America <laughs> in Missouri right now. This is, of course, our, our holiday show. Uh, I hope everyone's celebrating a happy Hanukkah and, of course, Christmas is the weekend. Uh, I always bring the, you know, the Christmas cheer. We're going to talk about fascism. Anyway, <laughs> you know, it's what you do at uh, Welcome. You know, that's okay. We got a great guest. We got a great show. I'm thrilled to have her on. I, I've been I've been trying to get her on forever. She's been traveling the world as always. So uh, let's not waste any time. Let's get on with the show. All right. Welcome. As usual, I mentioned earlier, I am Fred Wellman, your host. You can't get rid of me. It's my show and I'm paying for it. So here we are. It's uh, good to be back with you on the holiday week. I just got back from uh, visiting my kids and grandkids in Richmond, Virginia and snuck in before the snowstorm hits this week. And uh, uh, so if I'm slightly uh, jet lagged, I apologize. Uh, <laughs> I got in at like one in the morning, but that's that time of year, folks. I hope you're having safe travels, man. I really am excited about the show. Um, you know, so much going on. I was in D.C. yesterday. I uh, got the opportunity to meet the great Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn for the first time in person. We've we've talked for ages via text and otherwise. Uh, and so it really made me think. And I got to tell you, um, every time I go to the Capitol uh, in the last two years, I'm always I always kind of marvel at what happened there. OK, on January 6th, coming up on two years. And, and of course, with all the things going on with the end of the com- committee and everything else, I just thought it was a great time. I've been trying to get our guest on the show for a while. She's incredibly busy. She's been in Italy and everything else. <laughs> but we have a great guest, and that's Ruth Ben-Ghiad, who is a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University. She is an MSC, uh, excuse me, MSNBC opinion columnist and commentator on CNN and other media outlets about authoritarianism, fascism, threats to democracy around the world. Her latest book, featured right here in our stack of books, uh, of course, Strongmen from Mussolini to the Present, examines how illiberal leaders use corruption, violence, propaganda, and machismo to stay in power and how resisting them has unfolded over a century. I love the book. Uh, I, uh, she also publishes a terrific, terrific Substack newsletter and community called <coughs> Lucid about democracy and autocracy, and I'm proud to be a paying subscriber, too. I'm a paying subscriber. She not only writes her regular newsletter, but hosts, of course, <laughs> hosts chats about the issues of the day. I mean, you got to sign up for this one's worth it. Ruth, man, welcome to the show. So glad to have you. Uh, I appreciate your time. I know you're busy this time of year, too. Yeah, I'm delighted to speak with you. Well, you know, I always start the show. Now, you and I, of course, we actually talked last year. You were so kind to come on. I was running yeah. a chapter online community, so we actually talked previously. But I want to get you in the show so the whole world could see our conversation because you're so smart. Uh, I was actually nervous getting ready, Ruth, because you're like, I was joking earlier that you're like the smartest person I've had on. No offense to anybody who's been on before, but Ruth is smarter than you. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, it's so good to connect. I, you know, one of the things I... um I like to ask my guests, uh, we start off every show is like, how did you get here? How'd you get in this moment? I mean, you've, you've been in academic world for many years. You grew up in California, California. <laughs> what led you to studying fascism and authoritarian? How'd a girl from California to studying Mussolini? I'm just curious where the, where the journey. Know, today. It, it, it's not the most um, logical thing, but actually being in California is what did it because um, so I don't, there's no family connection to fascism. Um, you know, my dad's from the Middle East, my mom's from Scotland, so nobody was in Europe when yeah. fascism was going on. But um, to, as it turned out, when I'm in high school, I discovered that my town, Pacific Palisades and surrounding towns, Santa Monica, the beautiful beach towns, Malibu, these were areas where a lot of refugees from Nazism settled, like famous ones, like Thomas Mann, the writer, or the, the Arnold Schoenberg, the composer. 
And Arnold Schoenberg's son was a teacher at my high school. And so I started talking to him. I just started thinking about, you know, what does it mean that, that this awful regime comes in and these people have to flee, you know, halfway around the world and start over again, basically. And, and then I continued to study it in college and I decided to do Italy because a professor told me, well, you know, there's not as much done on Italy and it lasted twice as long. Right. So, so I thought there was more space to, to, to explore, to do, you know, something original, but that's how I got started was thinking about these, these exiles. And so it's interesting because in my book, Strongmen, I have this sub theme of exiles. Right. Um, and, and I think also there's a little bit where my parents were not exiles, but they, they were getting, they were first generation and they were getting used to American culture. And most of their friends were not American. They were from all over the world, but like not American. And so there was that experience of being growing up in America, but um, having a global outlook, let's say. That is just fat. What a great, I'm so glad I asked that question. And you know, every time I ask that question ends up being something, you know, unexpected and you, you guys go on TV and everybody knows you're from TV, but we don't actually know you, I think is the, the, the challenge of that format. So I, I love yes. it. What a great journey. And of course you, you've become a leading expert in the country on this topic. I mean, it's requiring now you were just in Italy, right? For the hundredth anniversary of Mussolini's coup, de, coup, right? So I mean, I, that comes as a, you know, a, a new far right government's taken over in Italy. It's calling themselves, you know, it, right. You know, uh, it was the post fascism. They're calling themselves. I mean, yeah, I, you know, they're not post, they're like they're not post at all. Right. Neo fascist. I mean, you know, yeah. what did you come away from that moment? You know, you were there for quite a while as you came away and back seeing this country it sort of gone full circle in a hundred years. I mean, what does that leave you with a feeling after studying this for you know so many years, a couple of decades, it, it must be an unusual feeling yeah. to see it go. Like, it's it's like, it's like a weird karmic thing that a hundred years exactly yeah. after the March on Rome, which again brought Mussolini and he, it's very important because Mussolini was a prime minister in a democracy for three years. So we always think of Hitler. Right. For, there's very good reasons we think of Hitler, but Mussolini, there's like more lessons because he, you know, during these three years, he like wrecked democracy and then he declared a dictatorship. But it's like a bad karma thing uh, that, you know, 100 years after this neo-fascist government comes into power. And also very interesting that uh, the head of this first, you know, neo-fascist government is a woman. Right. Who's who's actually uh, she grew up as a Georgia Meloni. She grew up as a hardcore, like militant. She was the head of the youth you know, wing of the party of the official neo-fascist party. And right. as you know, the youth, youth, they're always like real hardcore. Right. And so now she you know, says, I'm a conservative and she's small and petite and blonde. And she uses soft focus like Carrie Lake. She has yeah. these videos now with twinkling lights and soft focus, but we should not be fooled. You know, she's not a post-fascist. She's not conservative. She is a neo-fascist and She's really a, kind of a demagogue in the Mussolini way. It's really scary. Um, yeah. So I'm following that closely. It's like a pink washing, right? Is that, is that, it's, you know, we, they talk about a lot. I was, yeah. you know, a PR guy and, you know, every year we have the, the, for example, the breast cancer awareness month and the football players wear pink, yeah. you know, and, and, and the accusation is that we're pink washing, you know, issues to make, it's a way of making something, you know, the football of all places, the NFL be pro woman, right? <laughs> it, it, it almost feels like we're pink washing authoritarianism in some ways, right? Is that, is that kind of the, what you're yeah. saying? Yeah. There's this term and it's not my term. Um, 
gender washing okay. by these yep. female political scientists. And it's really, it started with um, people like Marine Le Pen. Yeah. You know, she's the better known one. Right. And, and she, she's, you know, very prominent and her father started this extremist party. And so these are very patriarchal, very sexist environments. And so it's interesting that, you know, Le Pen was able to rise up because um, she, you know, had her father as an uh, introduce her. Right. But she too, she dresses in a very tailored way. She's impeccable looking. And these these women, and you can also count the president of Hungary, Katalin Novak, they talk about like they're right, that they're for women and they're for, you know, women's power, but they're actually taking women's rights away, like right. the rolling back reproductive rights. And so these political scientists talk about gender washing where you could, it's easy to fall just because they're women. You think they're going to be on the side of women, but it's much more complex than that. Yeah, and much so. No, on that topic, just continuing that thread, I mean, you actually recently, one of your recent uh, Lucid newsletters talked at great length about, you know, defining fascism in this age, right? It, it is, you may laid out a modern definition of fascism that was absolutely, for me, I found <clears throat> fascinating and kind of disturbing, right? It, it feels like a lot of leaders from Putin or Bond to Trump are, are dancing with fascism, yeah. but trying to play clever word games to avoid the label, right? So it's, I think you make a clear totally. case why it's bullshit that they are, you know? Um, I mean, what are the signs, I think they're, the, you know, what are the signs you see of, of a modern fascism and why is it important that we recognize it as so, in your opinion? Because, you know, and I, I didn't, I'm very careful about using the F word. Right. And I didn't, I was one of the people who didn't want to use it for Trump. Right. Um, and people would, you know, a lot of people, progressives would get mad at me for, for not using the F word. And part of it was actually strategic because I felt like, you know, when we think of fascism, we think of Hitler and maybe Mussolini. Right. And it it doesn't work that way today. You have outside of communism, you have fewer one party states. You have election today. People keep elections going. And, and even, you know, in Putin's Russia, where, you know, it's just by now it's like a dictatorship. And I agree with Tim Snyder. He's a fascist. Right. So I'll use the F word for him. I'll use the F word for Tucker Carlson. He's a fascist demagogue. Yep. But it can be misleading because if you start saying, well, we're in fascism now under Trump, then people will be like, well, you're speaking out. There, there are multiple parties. There's a free media environment. So then it's like, what is fascism going to mean? So the whole purpose of my book was to look at what changes and what change stays the same. And I do think that, you know, the GOP, for example, is, is it's definitely an autocratic party and it's acting in its methods as well as its content. It's acting more and more like a fascist party. But if we're going to use that word, we have to realize it's going to mean something slightly different today. Yeah. Um, you're not going to have a shutdown of all opposition parties. It's that's just not how it works today in most places. Right. Right. It's fast. And, and of course, there's the underlying the violence. Right. That's and that's how you ended your, your yeah. newsletter was you talk about that. There's you know, that the thing is, the key is also if you if you overlook it, you're overlooking the potential for violence and the violence. And then and one of the things I've been saying quite a bit, right. I did I did actually have Dr. William Horn on the first season of the show. Um, when I was on Colin and, you know, he, cause he wrote an essay called, yeah, let's use the F word. Right? And so when you said it, I was like, oh, I, I, I talked about this once before. Um, but I mean, there's that underlying violence to it. Right. Which is, and I've, I've highlighted a lot. Totally, if you remember, yeah. we, we did the beer hall project, my, my, my pack that I started last year is yeah. you know, the, the violence inherent, but the violence isn't necessarily government violence. It's encouragement of street violence. It's the, 
It's the, it's, it's the black extremist. shirts, right? It's the squadistas. It's the, it's the brown shirts in Germany, yeah. you know, fighting the, fighting the, the socialist, right? And in, in the, you know, the, the Bolsheviks in the streets, it's, there is a violent inherent in that, that system. And we do see that, right? We saw that January 6th. Oh, we totally. Well, and you know, it, the other reason that Italian fascism needs to be better known is that it started as a decentralized militia movement right. in the countryside, right? Mussolini was based in the country in Milan, but it started as these squads that went around and took control in the countryside. Right. And they were, you know, killing and beating up, uh, not, and not just like leftists, but also progressive pre- priests. Wow. So the militia aspect is really important. And, you know, so of course I, I've written a lot about the extremists today because when Trump started appealing, you know, he didn't just like cultivate these extremists, uh, of all sorts. And of course his rallies like January 6th, also these were radicalizing places where everybody got together. Right. right? Um, but he was also, he and other GOP people were using proud boys and oath keepers as private security at rallies for years since 2016. Right. So they had a relationship with these people. And one of the most disturbing things going on now, you know, if, if you want to like, from my point of view, studying, authoritarian parties. If you want to see what a party is, uh, track a party becoming more authoritarian, you got to look at who's getting kicked out of it and who is coming in. And the people coming in are like extremists, like, like, you know, Mark Fincham, he didn't win his election, but it's a big deal that he's an oath keeper and he was the candidate for secretary of state in Arizona. And there are many other oath keepers running for office. They're proud boys, on the Republican executive committee in Miami, you know, these people are becoming the politicians. And that reminds me totally of early fascism. Yeah, it's, it's right on target. And that's how I've seen it too. And, and, and we ignore those, those, those lessons at, at our peril. And, you know, again, we, we talk about January 6th quite a bit and, and, and you talked about January 6th in your newsletter today and the motion it brings up every, every now two years later, you know, I was on the Hill just yesterday. I was, Cause I mentioned, I was able to catch up with Harry Dunn, um, and I was struck by a line in your newsletter today as a former army officer and, and who worked at the Pentagon, by the way, I, I worked that level. I was on the army staff, my last job in the army, I was on the yeah. army staff. Um, and it's, and you said something key, you said, quote, during a coup, some must act and others yeah. must stand down so the operation can proceed. Right. And, and a year ago, a number of generals, I'm actually involved in a, a exercise, which I'll be able to tell everybody about probably after January 6th, but uh, uh, several retired generals, Paul Eaton, others wrote a letter, wrote an op-ed saying that we're worried about mm-hmm. a second insurrection and we're worried about the military was, involvement. Yeah. You yeah. Were part of that, I was right? really interested in that. Yeah. And, and, and they recommend, and, and so, you know, me as a soldier, a former soldier, I mean, do you think yeah. the institutions like the Pentagon, those are, are seeing the danger as we see, more and more of these folks. I mean, my God, there was an act duty major, a, a, a United States Army, excuse yeah. me, United States Marine Corps major from Quantico broke in and held the door open and is being charged for the insurrection. So, so I guess, I guess yeah. as you, as you thought about that today, as you wrote, I mean, our, our, I guess we're not out of danger, right? I mean, it's, there still is those in many ways they're continuing their march uh, and we're just sort of sleeping to it. Right. Yeah, because the part that it's, it's enormously important that there are these criminal referrals, um, hugely important, but the part, and the committee couldn't do everything. Right. Right. But the part that we don't know enough about, and I go on intuition, I knew the second it happened because, you know, again, the third of the, of my book is about coups. Right. And, and that was the part I knew less about. 
Um, and so I really did a huge amount of research and I have coups all over the world in the book. So there are certain principles about coups. Um, and one of them, you just said, some people have to act and other people have to stand down and not do anything. So it's dereliction of duty. So you don't pass on the warnings. You make sure the reinforcements don't you know, arrive. Or if it's a military coup, you make sure when you've done this ahead of time through liaisons, you make sure that other types of armed people like police, if they're not on your side, they're going to be in a position where they can't act against you. You got, you know, that kind of thing, acting to make, make sure others don't act and do their duty. So when, when, and this is America, we have so many, it's the biggest military in the world. So many armed forces of every type and, those Capitol police were left on their own with just a few other metropolitan police. This was, I knew this was highly fishy. So all this to say what we don't know about yet, because the cover up has been very deep is the Institute people in all of the institutions. So the secret service, we know they deleted their texts. We don't have the full, we don't have the full um, picture of the scope of collaboration in institutions because any coup um, you have to have a broad buy-in from elites all over the place, um, both in government. And then we also don't know, like we know that the public's heiress, that supermarket heiress, she funded buses, but we don't know the full story of the GOP politician ties and funders so as long as we don't know those things and they've been very successful, that's why they won't testify. They refuse subpoenas. We can't adequately protect our institutions. I'm assuming I don't have access to intelligence. I'm assuming there are lots of people who know way more than me. And I hope that they are acting because that's what you've got to do. That's what the study of coups tells you. You've got to make sure uh, that those people are dealt with professional sanctions in order that it doesn't happen again. Well, the brilliance of it is, like you said, the inaction. Like, how do I prosecute someone for not yeah. doing something? I mean, and and obviously everyone, you know, the, you know right? Yeah. The, 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 uh, the, the unsaid thing, of course, is, John, you know, we talk about Charlie Flynn. By everybody I talk to, Charlie Flynn's a decent guy, three-star general. Everybody I talk to, everybody knows him, said he's a regular guy. But there's no way to get around the fact that his brother was a key planner of the events and, and remains so. And he he was at the Pentagon in one of key meetings, and he walked away, and they weren't sent. And and he, I got a personal experience with this, Ruth. My son-in-law is a, this, it's a, a Virginia. Huge yeah, it's a huge problem. My son-in-law is a Virginia National Guardsman. He had he's, he's been in the middle of all this shit, and he, so he was actually in Charlottesville. He was one of the Marine. He was one of the military policemen uh, that had to guard the Lee statue. He saw all the violence unfold. Longest, longest. Day, I honestly, I say it. This is a, a young man who deployed to Iraq um, during the war in 2011. <clears throat> but his day in charge was the longest day of my life as a father and a soldier. Um, he deployed for the inauguration of Trump, and they were armed and they were ready for violence. Because remember, the 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 yeah. ladies with pink hats were coming. But they didn't deploy to January 6th when we knew there was violence coming. That it just Again, it's the, yeah. the lack of action, right? And uh, that's what keeps me up at night. I mean, how do you prosecute someone because they simply didn't do something? That's the question of the day. Yeah, so. you, you, I don't, yeah, you'd have right. to have, you know how they're, you know how they're trying to sanction, um, uh, they're recommending, the committee recommended that, 
the House Ethics Committee take over the cases of the people who didn't respond to subpoenas. Right. So that's the way, the only way would be a kind of professional ethics sanction, but that's not going to do it when you're talking about extremists. Right. And in the um, military. The thing about, and Michael Flynn, the, I, he's, I've called him in PBS documentary, the most, one of the most dangerous people in America right now, I because agree. not only he was there and he's probably still getting his military pension, he et cetera. Is. He's, he's embarked on this tour, this reawaken America tour, which is, uh, a radicalizing tour. He is talking, he's trying to indoctrinate people um, also like using psychological warfare and telling them like trying to get them to use psychological warfare on others and, and indoctrinating them into being an army uh, of insurrectionists. So it's pretty open what he's doing. Reawaken yep. is not, you know, he's a Christian nationalist, but this isn't about spirituality. This is about, um, having an, an army of God that is armed. So this, he's a huge problem. And, and I don't really know who, who or how, who to stopping him or who can stop him and how right. he's right. a and private I, citizen right now. And I constantly get asked that. I literally had a DM just last night on Twitter. Somebody said, Fred, I don't understand. I don't understand how he hasn't been recalled at yeah. in court martial. And, and you have to explain that. Typically, that isn't. It's only for crimes that were committed. They typically only recall somebody if there was a crime that was in, committed in service. Like for example, there yeah, was, there was actually know. a general. You know, there's a general who was found out had abused a young girl. I think his own daughter actually, uh, and was recalled for that and stripped his rank and thrown in jail. But it's very difficult. And and, and I know there to, and that's our problem. Our institutions are so scared of the norms and traditions being broken. Indicting a president, recalling a general for activities on retired status. Um, it's, it's, we're going to, I, I, I've been saying it for two years. People are sick of hearing it from me, but we're going to, we're going to tradition ourselves into, if, if, into, you know, history, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because we're not in normal times. That's why I keep doing everything I'm doing is to let people know that these are not normal times. We are, I, I, tr I think, you know, as soon as Trump said he wouldn't accept the results of the election, we started a kind of state of exception. Right. And, um, and you can interpret that broadly and that allowed all kinds of, you know, things to start happening and the GOP and the Flynn's and all these people, they, they saw the possibilities of being lawless. And that's what Trump bequeathed to the nation. Everybody saw that you could be rewarded for being lawless. Right. So if we, if we continue using norms and customs that were made for times when both parties believed in democracy, that's, this is not, that's not living in reality. We've, and it's been hard also with media too. They keep, it's been hard to shift the culture away from the idea that we should take the both parties at good faith. Yeah, I had sold um, out. I had sold on O'Brien on the show just two weeks ago for that very purpose. That that, that as an exactly, another, she's another, wonderful. Yeah, she's great because yeah. we both we recognize the institutions are not up to this moment. You know, it's it. it you mentioned uh, you mentioned in well, in the book. You know, in, and so here's the book. For by the way, I highly recommend the book. Um, and you wrote now. You wrote that in early 2020. <laughs> Right. And, and you have Trump's in there and, 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 and it's somewhat surreal reading the new book now, you know, seeing how things went. It's but, so, you know, it, I, I actually have a note in my script. Where I say how often <laughs> now we're two years on. I imagine you want to screen the TV on a daily basis. I told you so. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you saw it coming. You said that you, you said that he would not take the scars of being a loser. It goes against his his psyche. Right. Um, it, 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 it's exactly what you're just talking about. Right. We, we, you did kind of call it right that there would be some fight. Um, so with that said, 
he's re, he remains on the national stage. Um, is there a, you know, where, where are, are we not seeing the flags or is there a danger again? I mean, and how does that, how does that play out? You think in the next few months? Yeah, this, it's a super interesting moment because as you know, um, many GOP, you know, it's not that he's an extremist, it's that he's not winning elections for them. Right. And so they're not so interested in him anymore. He's got too much baggage suddenly. It's, again, it's very important. It's not because he's a criminal in a million ways. It's because he he's, uh, he's not performing. His people are not performing. <laughs> so they want an, an extremist who can win elections, and that they think is Ron DeSantis, who is equally extreme, but is, is too smart to, to say things like I could stand on fifth Avenue and shoot someone. He's right. not, DeSantis isn't going to say that. Um, so I don't know what will, what will happen, but Trump still has a formidable, he has a base that's, that's very strong. Still Marjorie Taylor green is still, you know, she's a real opportunist. So who knows what will happen, but she's still saying that he's her candidate. And above all, this is the, the, the scary part is he's got, uh, millions of devoted armed followers um, who would gladly, you know, do January 6th all over again for him. Yeah. That's, that's the problem. And the other thing is the more he feels forsaken and humiliated and cast off, the more he's going to just want to destroy everything. And, and not just the party people keep writing about that, but also invoke incite violence to just, bring everything into chaos. Um, I truly believe that because he, that's how he has the same personality as other people who've done those things in the past when they think they're really uh, going down and, and this would be definitive for him. uh, You don't, it's very unpredictable what he would do. Yeah. And it's, I just had a really chilling thought. I mean, he's, he's been fairly careful in his double speak and his very careful and not being, you know, it, keeping himself from being implicated in things. Right. But you're right. That chilling thought is what if he doesn't care anymore? What if he simply says, you know, it's time that somebody took over that building. I mean, if he, if he truly did, if he dropped yeah. a pretense, I mean, it's, it's sort of terrifying that if his double speak was able to accomplish January 6th, imagine if he went straight at it. Well, he's, you know, it's think about um, if you were not getting into that mood, why would you choose now to invite Nazis? Right to dinner Not a and be proud of it and refuse to apologize for it. He's getting, what's going to happen is he, he's going to be associating with the most extreme elements of society because that's all he has left Yeah. because the more establishment, they're all extremists at this point. So when I say establishment, um, they're, they're all fascists, but yeah. um, they are gravitating toward the smoother you know, the guy with the suit and tie and not the guy who's inciting violence. Yeah. Um, so what does he have left? He has Nick Fuentes left, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, who just two weeks ago gave a speech in public saying, if I had organized January 6th, it would have worked because we would have had more arms there. Yep. So these people are totally unrepentant. They do it again tomorrow and they do it better. Yeah. <laughs> so it would work. And, and in what role do you see, I mean, she, cause she talked about Steve Bannon there. I mean, we, we haven't talked about Bannon. I mean, I see Bannon as sort of one of the um, most rotten 
the the rotten core of a lot of this is Steve Bannon. I think he gets a pass a totally. lot. We talk about Flynn, you know, and she said if Steve Bannon and I had planned this, you know, he, we would have won. I mean, yeah. what is what role do you see Bannon in all this? I mean, there is a there's a, a microscopic chance you might see a jail cell, but I'm not holding my breath at this point. I just don't see it. Um, what world do you see Bannon? I in wish. And, yeah, I know. What world do you I see Bannon? Go to jail. And, the, and the danger of a Bannon, um, right? You know, he's sort of the he's, uh, he's, the muse in some yeah, ways. Yeah, he's the master. He's been the mastermind of the strategy at the very beginning. I mean, when um, he truly, you know, he's a real he's a real fascist. And right. One definition of fascism Mussolini gave, and I talk about it in that article, is it's a revolution of reaction where you blow everything up to actually. Um, turn back the clock in some ways and and take away rights from people who have gotten, you know, too many rights. Um, so you're, that's why you come in and you shake everything up and then you protect uh, tradition to protect white male Christian tradition. Right. So Bannon, you know, through his time in the early Trump administration, he's a formidable propagandist. He's actually, you know, he's advises Bolsonaro. Yes. He's all over the world. He tried, he tried to, to set up his little fascist Academy in Italy, right? At one point that got yes. stopped. Yes. He's, he thinks big. Um, and he's one of these nodes of America. Uh, there are many now of the GOP with these international networks. So he, but let's just keep to our country. He's, he's, he's at it with his podcast, radicalizing people every day. Um, it's and the fact that these people are just around and they're not in jail is uh, I don't I don't know what to say about that. It's just awful. Well, it circles back to that institutional failure, right? That the 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 the, yeah. the fear of, of of crossing a line or some sort of imaginary line. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's hard not to be a conspiracy theorist when you know it keeps playing out and you know <laughs> you know playing. But which brings me to I'll probably let you go because I know you got a hard stop. But so back to my trip to DC. Uh, I had a meeting with a, a, a number of people, some great meetings. But what I what I really felt was interesting was one of her comments was that her her feeling in the city is that with the midterms behind us, there's sort of a vibe, especially among the Democrats, that we quote survived the threat. That with this election and holding the Senate and and in many ways, you know, not being as you know, going as bad as it could, that. This, this talking about the danger to our democracy and preserving democracy or groups that are dedicated like or, or, or voices like ours that are dedicated to, to protecting the democracy and the republic um, are somewhat passe now. Right. And I disagree. But, you know, with a month yeah. under us since the midterms, where do you I mean, do you see do you, are you getting that same vibe or do you think maybe we're have people fallen asleep at the wheel here? I mean, it, it for, sort of feels like they're they're ignoring the, the red lights and flat. I mean, it's what it's like Chernobyl, right? <laughs> like what are, the, what are these red lights? Ah, don't worry about it. It's just red lights. I mean, I, is that, is, I mean, are, are we in more danger now than we were two years ago? I guess it's the big question as we approach January 6th again. Yeah. You know, you know what? Well, people are exhausted and people, and we, we did have a lot of amazing victories in the midterms, like just 93 Muslims were elected. Um, yeah. So many historic firsts and people want to have a moment to feel good. But, um, but <laughs> the problem is it's like, it's like this incremental um, incremental change that is not good for democracy in that when Congress starts up again, one third of the house is going to be election deniers. One third because of the midterms. Yep. So we all know, and it's very important that the Finchams and, you know, the, 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 some of the worst offenders, Mastriano, 
They didn't win. Very important that Fetterman won. His whole campaign is like a model for the future. They yep. need more candidates like that. Fine. But what? how are you going to govern with a third of the House um, extremists? Because being an election denier is not just about accepting propaganda, a belief that Trump won the election. It's a, it's corruption. It's refusing to, it's, it's something you do. You're refusing to accept defeat. Right. You're, you're refusing to accept democracy. That's why um, Dean Obadiah calls them democracy deniers, which I really like that term. Right. So if you've got a third of the house is democracy deniers, what do you get? How are you going to govern? Right. I don't know. Um, and, and they have power because of the thin margin. They're, they're going to have a loud, they're going to have an outsized voice. Yeah. Uh, luckily we held the Senate though, as it'd be a complete train wreck. And, and I, and I talked about Michael Steele last week. I call them the wallpaper Republicans, right. Or the, the late for lunch crowd, right. Who don't answer questions there. There's so many who are. Um, and I guess that's my last point though. I said, do you, we talk a lot about the extremists. We, like you said, there's one third are deniers. But sometimes I feel like the real danger is the two thirds are just letting it go. Right. I, like I said, I call them the wall, yeah. the wallpaper Republicans. These are the ones who their dream in life is to disappear into the fucking walls. <laughs> right. <laughs> and not yeah. be seen. And they're, and they're letting it occur. They're, they're, they're disappearing in the background. I, I joke about, you know, you see the press conference, they're the ones that run by the microphone. Sorry, late for lunch. It's, it's the passive. We, we talked about earlier in the conversation about the ones who simply the, the part of the coup where they just don't act. Right. Um, how do we reach them? I mean, is there in in your, in your perspective as historian of these things, those are really the keys, right? I mean, in a lot of ways, it's the ones who sit by and let it happen. Right. Yeah, it is them or, or the people like I'm today in today's newsletter, I mentioned Josh Hawley. Yes. Who my Senator right here in Missouri. Thank you very much. Yeah. So his, his, (laughs) you know, three act drama, uh, we all know the first two acts, he fist pumped, he incited, and then he had to run for his life. So we all laughed at him being a mean, yep. but the third act, what did he do? He quickly adopted the party line. He got quiet. Um, I mean, he's still out there, but he's still trying to be respectable as though, and it meant as though January 6th was a nothing burger right. or also he, that required him to just not talk about the threat to himself. And Pence is doing the same thing. It's, right. it's absolutely, it's unbelievable to me that Pence, I mean, not really because there are other authoritarian examples of people who are threatened by the leader and don't speak out, but those are in, those are, those things happen in regimes like Mobutu's Congo in the Congo of Mobutu. Right. That's the other examples I have for people who act like Pence. So you're right. How do we reach those people who are normalizing this, even though they're not uh, talking about denying elections? Because they're equally complicit because they're in the party and they're supporting everything. Right. They are. They're complicit. And and. And again, their their whole yeah. goal is to disappear, uh, to to run re-election and and not. We we have a, yeah. a, I highlight Ann Wagner here in Missouri quite a bit. She just keeps a low profile. She gets reelected because she's got a solid red district, but you know, but she's yeah. there against the wall. She disappears in the wallpaper every chance she gets. Um, but there's much, in my opinion, in many ways, more of a danger to the country because they simply won't stand up to the extremist for their own pursuit. Of yeah. And that's those, the conformists uh, are the ones who fueled, who've let authoritarianism stay in power. I mean, this way in Italy, they were there for 20 years. It's like, it's insane. Right. So because of people like that, so you're, you're absolutely right to um, 
highlight that we should, we should all do that more often. Yeah. Well, I'm going to, well, this has been great. I, I just, I can't thank you enough for your time and I'm always impressed and, and overwhelmed and I feel like I'm struggling to keep up with you, <laughs> but thanks for your time. I really appreciate Ruth. I hope no, you have you're, a, a, a wonderful You're holiday. ahead of the curve. I, I did want to say one thing because you have your beer hall project. Yeah. Um, you know, next spring is the, uh, is the anniversary. Yep. And I was invited to a conference in Germany by the National Socialist Museum, which is not, it's an anti-Nazi, obviously, in right. Munich. Right. And I'm going to go. Wow. Because it seems just as it was very important to be in Italy for the 100th anniversary of that, um, I'm, I'm going to speak um, at this conference on the 100th anniversary of the Beer Hall Putsch. So wow. I will be, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that um in the spring. Sounds like an excuse to have you back on the spring. <laughs> I love it. That's fascinating. Sounds good. Yeah, I can't believe it's been a hundred years. Time flies. It was we were, it was ninety eight when I started. Yeah, Jesus. That's terrifying. And again, the history lessons are there for us. I think people want to, you know, people again, the one thing in the theme I have with that project is that this was not that was not the end. That was the beginning. Uh and was, <laughs> you know yes, it was the absolutely. beginning. Absolutely. And uh, they learned a lot of lessons. Well, thank you so much. Hope you have a wonderful holidays. Thank you for your time and, you and too. thanks for everything you do. I mean the, what you do. Okay, you too. All right. Have a great day. Well, that was a great conversation with Ruth Benguiat. She's amazing. If you don't have her book, you must get the book Strong Men. You can find her online. She's Ruth Benguiat on Twitter and everywhere else as well. Uh, as you can see, I'm a bit of a super fan. I get goofy. With my, some of these guests, I just can't believe they're coming on my show to talk to me. And and she's one of my favorite people. Just a, a brilliant, brilliant intellectual. As always, you can always find me at FP Wellman on Twitter. On my, on my official Instagram, of course, is FP Wellman Official. Um, we really hope you love the show and you'll go to YouTube and smash that subscribe button and, and like it and share your thoughts and your comments. I do read them all. Even the ones that call me names. It's great. I love it. <laughs> the fashion criticism. I get it all. I love it all. It's all good. I, I, I'll take it all. I don't mind. It's just great to have you engage and talk to you guys. As always, we're sponsored by our friends at Vi Media, Vi.media. They are a terrific digital marketing agency based right here in the greater St. Louis area, our partner for you when you want to generate growth in hundreds of different industries. They've uh, they've been growing beautifully this year. We're very proud of their partnership. It can serve all of your digital marketing needs, and I hope you'll give them a call. Again, it's vi.media on the web, and you can uh, reach out to them, media. I love you being part of the show. We're still going through the holidays because I'm a glutton for punishment. There's so much important things going on. Next week's guest is Jason Kander, who's a a remarkable leader and, and, and has become a friend of mine here in Missouri. Jason uh, had run for office. Um, remarkably, he took a pause from running when he, he recognized his challenge with his, his own uh, mental health and PTSD like me. He's very involved in the program. I'm very proud to be a part of the Veteran Community Project here in St. Louis and Kansas City. And we'll have a chat next week in our, our mid-holiday uh, show. And I, I hope you'll join us for that. In the meantime, as I mentioned, share the show, share the clips, and be a part of our community. I'm very proud of you. I hope you have the most wonderful holidays with Hanukkah and Christmas is approaching. Uh, enjoy them with your families and stay safe out there. Thanks for joining the show.